0: Well, I do want to say it is so good to be back. Thank you for your prayers. We uh, had the opportunity to go to Thailand and Korea and minister in both places. Uh, Connected with ABWE, we had some administrative meetings in uh, Bangkok, also a graduation, and then stopped in Seoul, Korea to see John Song and had the privilege of preaching with uh, Billy Kim and his church, Jim Miller, who is here uh, this morning, went with me, and uh, we had a wonderful, wonderful time. But it is so good to be back. Uh, I love the worship today, the choir did a phenomenal job, Kim's song, wow, just awesome. And it's not like this anywhere else, so thank you so much for welcoming me home. We've been talking about worship, connect, and serve. Serve is where we're going today, and before we open the scriptures, let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege of worshiping you, of coming into your presence and lifting up your holy name. I pray, Father, that your scriptures will come alive to us. We recognize they are alive, but sometimes we are unresponsive. So, Lord, wake up our souls and our minds and cause the word of God to have great impact. Open our minds that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. One verse came to my mind when I thought of this subject of serving and it comes out of Philippians chapter 2. You don't need to turn there just yet. But Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 says this. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. 2-5 of Philippians. Sometimes the word mind is translated attitude, like in the New American Standard Bible of the New Living Translation, but it's the same concept. Let this mind, this attitude, a mindset be in you, a perspective on life and the way to live life, let it be in you just like it was in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we begin to talk about living a Christian life, I think one of the concepts that comes to us is this idea of adopting the mindset of Christ, making sure that we're thinking after Christ and our thoughts are following him. And one great place to go to the scriptures to develop this mindset, to see what the mindset is like, is the gospel according to Mark. So I would like you to turn to Mark chapter 10. In fact, we're going to be looking at two portions of Scripture that are very much alike in that they develop the mindset of Christ as well as urge us to practice it. Mark chapter 10 gives us the account when James and John, who are the sons of Zebedee, and this is chapter 10, verse 35, James and John, two-thirds of the inner circle, the one who is missing is Peter, When James and John came, and according to another text, they came with their mother, (laughs) they came to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, my friends, that's got to be one of the worst prayer requests in the world. (laughs) If your child came to you and said, Mom and Dad, I'm not going to tell you what just yet, but I want your commitment that you will do for me whatever I ask. All of us would smell a problem. All of us would respond with, we want more information. It's a ridiculous way to approach someone who has the ability to bless you, the one who provides for you. It is narcissistic to the nines. You can't display any more self-centeredness and self-love and egotism and vanity than what these two disciples are about ready to do but notice the patience of Jesus what do you want me to do for you now think about that for a moment I'm not exactly sure if at this point in time whether Jesus knows what they're going to ask because we recognize that Jesus at times gave up his divine prerogatives now as God he knows everything that's going to take place but as a human being sometimes he experienced things as they came to him But I kind of think in his divine position as well, he knew exactly what was going to be said. By the way, anytime you and I offer a prayer to Jesus, he knows exactly what we're going to say. He knows before we even ask. So he shows tremendous patience when he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, verse 37, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in glory. Now the, the most positive thing you can say about this verse is that they were convinced that the kingdom of Christ was coming and coming soon. If you follow the narrative, uh, Jesus is marching on his way to Jerusalem and a huge group of people will follow him and they will even call out Hosanna on the day he enters Jerusalem. Save us now. You're our king. The kingdom has come. And they recognize that the kingdom is on its way. That's the, the positive slant on this particular statement. But what they're asking for is the greatest position possible that they could receive. Now I want you to notice this. There is a startling contrast. Between the master. And his disciples. For we're going to read. Later on in the text. That Jesus didn't come. To take great position. He didn't come. To be served. He came to serve. He didn't come. To establish a great position. For himself. He came as a ransom for us all. But they wanted a position of greatness. Chief ministers of state in the new kingdom. Major roles of administration to play when the earthly kingdom of Christ would be established. By the way, I wonder what happened to Peter. He, he got boxed out like in a game of musical chairs. There's only two chairs, right? One in the right hand, one in the left. Sorry, Peter. The brothers want the best Of the positions. It sounds too much like modern day Christianity. We want to make sure that the position we have in the church is grand, that it's high profile, and that others admire us because of such a position. I like what John Stott said they anticipated an unholy scramble for the best seats in the kingdom, so they judged it prudent to make advance reservations. Lord we want the right hand and on the left. By the way the debate is not done yet because the right hand is better than the left I imagine the brothers just said well let's get those positions settled first and then we can battle out to see who's on the right and who's on the left. Such arrogance. If you're reading through the Gospel of Mark you'll realize that Jesus had already addressed this question in chapter 9 and yet they didn't get it. Our cho- choices are similar today self seeking or self sacrifice. How will we live? What will be the guiding principle of our life? Seeking power or service? By the way, what were they planning to sit on? On the right hand and left hand of Jesus? On the floor? Maybe on a bench, (laughs) on a throne, on a throne. I always thought it odd when churches had a platform with throne-like chairs upon which the pastor would sit. Oh, I know it was traditional, and there's got to be some background to where it started in an innocent way, but it smacks uh, of this idea of Kingdom seeking to me. Now that doesn't mean that every pastor who sits in a high throne chair on the platform has that spirit. But I just think it's wrong. <laughs> that's my own opinion. And that's why we never have any platform chairs up here. Actually, actually, there's too much going on to have platform chairs up here. But I think it's this same idea that we need to make sure that our position is not one that is elevated but lowly. So Jesus says to them, now you guys, verse 38, you don't know what you're asking for. Have you ever prayed a prayer request? And you thought exactly, uh, you, you had a full idea of what was going to take place. And it's as though God said to you, you have no idea what you're asking for. The ramifications and the consequences of this request are going to be massive. Can you handle it? What's going to come? Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup that I drink or the baptism where I'm going to be baptized with? Can you handle these things? Verse 39, bring it on. No problem. Sure we can. Now maybe they thought Jesus was talking about the luxurious banquet that they would enjoy in the kingdom, in the messianic kingdom, with the cups and the food, or maybe they thought there might be a little bit of administrative oversight that could be stressful at times, but hey, we can handle it, we've been with you, we know what it's about, yes, we can, but Jesus was alluding to the fact that when you identify with me, there's a cup of suffering, and there's a baptism of fire. I find it interesting that in the military, when a new recruit would have his first battle and would be under live fire from the enemy, they would often call it the baptism of fire. And so it is. Jesus said, well, you you know, you are going to have to drink these things. You are going to have to endure. And indeed, James was executed and John was exiled. And they suffered long before uh, these situations took place. But Jesus said in verse 40, it's really not mine to give who sits on the right and who sits on the left. That belongs to the Lord. Now verse 41 says, when the ten heard about this. They became indignant. Why? Because they didn't ask first. I think that was their biggest problem. Man, oh, I should have thought of that. I should have got to Jesus before they did. Pride causes everyone around you to feel ill. Pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. And the rest of the disciples now are indignant with James and John. But Jesus calls them all together like he did in chapter 9. And he said, I want you to know that those who are regarded as rulers among the Gentiles, that is the rest of the world, lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. The mark of worldly leadership is control. It is status. It is power. It is wealth. It is position. Great leaders must have that. And look at the corruption in our world among those who get a position of leadership and cannot hold on to the integrity they once professed. Jesus said, that's the way the world works. Verse 43, but not so with you. Would you underline that in your Bible or at least underline it in your mind? Not so with you. Or as one translation puts it, this is not the way among believers. This is not how, this is not how we operate. It's a totally different system. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Now Jesus is still talking about the greatest position. That's what James and John wanted. The greatest human positions in the kingdom. And Jesus says, here is the greatest position. If you want to be the greatest, you need to be the servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. He uses often in the New Testament two Greek words, one that we're very familiar with. It's the Greek word diakonos, where we get the English word deacon, and deacon means to serve. It does not mean to rule, it means to serve. And the other word is the word for a slave, doulos. It means one who is bound and one who is subservient and often is translated bond servant. Whoever wants to be first must be servant of all. Now why is this true? Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And now Jesus is telling them to embrace my mission. I want you now to humble yourself and embrace the calling. It is not selfish ambition. It is a divine mission of serving others and giving to them the grace and the mercy that God has given to you. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. And remember this, the disciple is never greater than their what? Master. So why would we try to take status over the one who was made nothing? It's interesting that the portrait of Jesus developed in the Old Testament is Many-faceted, but one of those great diamonds in the crown called Christ that helps us understand the person of Jesus is this idea of servant. I'll just throw out some verses. You can jot them down and look at them later. But Isaiah 52, See, my servant will act wisely, and he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That's referring to Jesus, the wise servant, who would be lifted up in suffering and then highly exalted in the ascension. Just as there were many who were appalled at him and his appearance and so disfigured he was beyond any human recognition. So he is the wise servant, but he's also the suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 53 is a chapter that we often look at in the Old Testament. It is indeed the chapter of the suffering servant. Jesus is the one... Who when they saw him, there was no comeliness, there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. But he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and w- acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then in verse 11 of Isaiah 53, He will see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge, my righteous servant. So Jesus is a wise servant and he's a humble or a suffering servant. And he is a righteous servant. That's the portrait of Christ from the book of Isaiah. If you were go to go to the book of Psalms, you would hear verses like Psalm 105 telling us that Abraham is a servant of God. Moses, Psalm 105, verse 26, a servant of God. David repeatedly in the Psalms calls himself a servant of God. Israel is called the servant of God. And Mary, when she accepted her mission to bring forth Messiah into the world, responded to the angel by saying... I am the Lord's servant. Who are we to take a higher position? So the evidence is overwhelming. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 12, when they wanted to kill Jesus, he withdrew to a quiet place. Many followed him and he healed all of their sick. All of this was done to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. From Isaiah 42, To Matthew chapter 12. Here is my servant whom I have chosen. The one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And he will proclaim justice to the nations. Jesus is a servant. And he came to serve. And we should be like Jesus. One of my favorite songs is that song that comes from Fernando Ortega. Just give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And when Christ is the focus of our life, as well he should be for every believer, this dominant theme of being a servant comes into play. I want to be like Jesus, which means I need to become a servant. Now let's go to the New Testament book of Philippians Philippians chapter 2. And the Apostle Paul is trying to encourage the church to be unified, to be like-minded. You have to understand that the church in Philippi was a great church. They were a missionary church, and Paul is writing the letter to the Philippians to thank them for what they have accomplished. They were generous in their giving. They were regular in their prayer for. Prayerful support, Paul said in chapter 1, that we're partners in the gospel. And I love that word, partners. That means that you work side by side. It means you're under the same yoke and like two oxen pulling together in the same task. But Paul said there are problems in the church at Philippi. Actually, what he refers to in chapter 1, verse 15 is the competition among preachers. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry and others out of goodwill. I don't know whether that was happening in the small little town of, of Philippi, but it certainly was in Rome where Paul was imprisoned and writing this letter. Preachers were preaching for poor, selfish ambition. It sounds exactly like what James and John wanted. Selfish ambition of position. In the last few years, and even more recently in the last year, I can think of at least four well-known preachers and authors and speakers who were kicked out of their church. And with many of them, it was arrogance. Selfish ambition. Well, it was in Paul's day, and that was a problem. Look at chapter 2 and verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Isn't that a convicting verse? Uh, I'm sure you would love to quote that to your children on a regular basis. The fear is that they'll learn it and begin to quote it back to you. Do everything without complaining or arguing. A little girl was at the dinner table with her father. The father was praying and in his prayer started complaining to God about things. And when the prayer was done, the the little girl said, uh, Daddy, does God hear our prayers? And he said, oh, yes, he hears our prayers. Wherever we are, whenever we pray, God hears our prayers. And she said, did he hear you complaining just now in yours? (laughs) To which the dad had to say, yes, he was caught. Well, that was a problem in the church at Philippi, but let's not stop there. Quickly look at chapter 4, and you'll notice that Paul is pleading in verse 2 with Euodia and pleading with Syntyche that they would stop fighting with one another Help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel to get along. Have them work together, side by side. And in many churches, some of the greatest conflict is found among the staff. Now, I'm not preaching this message because we've got great conflict among our staff. We really don't. There's, I think, a wonderful degree of harmony. But we're not perfect, and we have our times, I'm sure. But the point is, this wonderful church at Philippi, one of the best churches, is a church with issues. And Paul says, let's address that, shall we? Chapter 2, verse 2. If you want to make my joy complete to be like-minded which means have the same love and have the same purpose and one in spirit then I want you verse 3 to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit but in humility consider others as better than yourselves another convicting verse I think this verse along with verse 14 in the same chapter are two of the most convicting verses in all the Bible. Now it doesn't mean that the other people are better than you. It means that you are to consider that they are. That means that you are to take the position of a servant. Elevate them above yourself. Eliminate selfish ambition and elevate those who are around you. Verse 4, each one of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now jump down to verse 21, where Paul laments and says, I'm in Rome, and I have no one to send to you who looks out for the interests of others, except Timothy. I want to send Timothy to you soon, for everyone else looks out for their own interests, and not the interests of Christ. Isn't that sad? Here's a church where everyone looks out for themselves like James and John instead of realizing that we are to esteem others as better than ourselves and to take the humble position of a servant. So Paul urges Christians to put others above themselves and make their interests primary. There's an old hymn that we used to sing And it talks about this focus on others. Help me to live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayers will be for others. Help me in all I say and do to ever be sincere and true and know that all I do for you must needs be done for others. Let self be crucified and slain and buried deep and all in vain. May efforts be to rise again unless it be for others. Others, Lord, lest, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others so I might truly live for thee. That's the heart of Philippians chapter 2. In the message, Eugene Peterson translates verse 5 like this. Think of yourselves the way Christ thought of himself. And so if you want a model of humility, if you want a model of what it is to adopt the mindset of Christ, and that's what we're commanded to do in verse 5, adopt the mindset of Christ. Have this same attitude. The greatest becomes the servant The greatest person in the world becomes a servant, and he humbled himself, and we need to have the same mindset. Now, what we have in the following verses is the greatest contrast you could ever imagine. First of all, it establishes that Jesus is God, verse 6. Jesus, who being in the very nature, God, and that Greek word nature speaks of form, he did not consider equality with God. The Greek word is isos. We talk about isosceles isisoli, triangles. Uh, the angles or the, or the sides are perfectly the same. So Jesus is perfectly the same in nature and form with God. He did not consider equality with God something to hang on to. Is one of the best translations. He didn't grasp on to his position. It was rightfully his. He is God. He had all the privileges of heaven. And yet he let go. And made himself, verse 7, nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant. Now here is embracing the mission. So, the mindset of Jesus is where he humbles himself to serve other people. He humbled himself from going from the nature of God, verse 7, to the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Every step is down from heaven. To earth, In earth to a human being, from a human being to a servant among the human beings, to one who dies. And not just one who dies, but the most horrible of all deaths, the death on the cross. Every step is down. And verse 5 says, here's the example of what I'm saying. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Embrace the mission. He took upon himself the very nature of a servant. Now he was exalted, verse 10. And every servant who serves the Lord faithfully will be vindicated. Will be at one point exalted and repaid. But the point is right now we are servants. That's who we are. We are servants. Now, some of you who know your Bibles well will say, but pastor, does it not say in John chapter 15, Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. (laughs) Because a servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I'm letting you know what you are doing. Well, I hope you are not so simple-minded as to think that one verse can be ripped out of its context and be made into an independent doctrine. The fact is, you are both servants and friends. Uh, You and I wear many hats. If you're married, you wear the hat uh, of a partner, a spouse. If you have children, you wear the hat of a parent. If you have a job, you wear the hat of a profession. If you're a Christian, you wear the hat of a believer. Now, would it not be insane to say, well, I can't be a parent because I am a spouse. I can only have one hat. I will no longer call you a parent. I will simply call you a spouse. No, the point is we have many different positions and roles to play. And so we are children of God, and it doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but when He comes, we'll be like Him, for we'll see Him as He is. Wonder, what a wonderful, wonderful doctrine that we are the children of God, God, adopted by His grace. But you're still a servant, and He's still your Lord. And even though He is your friend, that does not deny the fact that He is your King. We are servants. Julie read earlier from Galatians chapter 5 and that's a rich portion of scripture because Paul highlights in that portion of scripture that we have been freed by the grace of God to serve. I don't know how many times I've heard someone in the political realm quote John chapter 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Ever heard that quoted? In a non-Christian context, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then they connected to the weirdest truth perhaps you've ever seen, and it doesn't quite fit the context. But I think the most powerful thing is to understand that that truth that it's referring to is the truth of Holy Scripture and the truth about Jesus being the Son of God. And the fact that he died for our sins. And when we trust him, we're forgiven. And when you know that truth, you are set free from the bondage of sin and the penalty of sin. So Paul argues then, based on that, that you, my brothers, this is Galatians 5.13, you were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. In other words, because, simply because you think you're free doesn't mean that there, are, there aren't guidelines to your freedom. Some people think true freedom is freedom without rules. That's the problem in America today. We talk about freedom and not wanting to have any rules and then people begin to add rules and people can't decide how many rules we need and how free we're going to be. The freedom here is freedom from bondage and sin. Don't use your freedom from sin to indulge in sin. But rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Another name for serving is love. And we'll talk more about this in greater detail, but the point of fact is that Jesus is a servant and we are to adopt that mindset. And when we do, we embrace his mission that the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. And if he took the biggest step down as an example for us, you and I need to take the lowly place of a servant to others. And that's what South Church needs. Maybe more than anything else, is for each one of us to get serious about serving Jesus Christ. Not in the same way. Maybe not even to the same extent. But willing to serve. Not looking for the easy road. Not looking for the high position. But looking for the mind of Christ in the midst of the church of God. And I'm convinced that when we worship Christ, we see his beauty, then we'll glorify him as Christ and we'll want to be like Christ. I don't know about you, but messages like this bring great conviction to my soul. Someone once asked me, um, sometimes your sermons are very hard hitting. And uh, I respond by saying, well, the Lord made me miserable in the middle of the week. And on Sunday, I want to make you miserable as well. (laughs) It's not exactly the truth, but it often happens that way. And so the Lord is going to deal with us in certain ways, I hope. In this portion of Scripture and I hope there'll be so many people willing to serve take advantage of the table out in the gathering space just to learn about opportunities maybe the Lord will burden you with a new ministry that needs to be established but the ministries that God has called us to be involved with should never lack workers and we've got some super servants in this church and the last thing they want me to do is to tell you their names But they serve without recognition and they serve faithfully. And most of you are in that category, faithful servants. Let's just pray that God will work in all of our hearts so that it will be recognized that this is a place where the mind of Christ dominates. Heavenly Father, help us this morning. I pray to embrace your word. Lord, to be convicted, yes, but to be encouraged because we don't serve alone. We serve in a new spirit who gives us passion and power and joy in the midst of our service. Oh, Lord, I pray, humble our hearts before our King that we might extend his kingdom with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.